Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Happiness is egg-shaped and loves a circle with no end. No, 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 Happiness is egg-shaped and loves a circle with no end. Hello and welcome to the Happiness Is podcast with me, your host, Bruce Aitchison from Happiness Is Egg Shaped, and I am delighted that you've chosen to join us again, I hope, or if you're here for the first time, welcome, and I hope you enjoy the show. I am joined by a guest that was on the original list of people that I wanted to speak to when we started this podcast, and I am so happy that she's been able to make time. This is a unique podcast. This is one of those situations where I'm a little bit pinching myself because of the guest who has said yes to spend some time with me talking about life and passion and rugby. I watched this person on TV in one of those shows that we all watch and we all get engrossed in, but then when there's some kind of common thing, we grab onto it. There's a hook and there was a hook for MasterChef and the hook was used to play rugby and come from a part of the world that I know very, very well. It's a bit like when you see somebody play for your country and they were at your club or they went to your school, you're now emotionally invested in it. And I was emotionally invested in MasterChef and absolutely loved watching the journey and hearing the stories. Now, this is somebody who does not need enemies because her friends were desperate to stitch her up with a whole load of backstory to help me out. But we're not here to do that. We're here to listen to some stories. So without any further ado, please welcome my very special guest and somebody who I've had to apologize to because we'd spoken for a while and then I realized I hadn't pressed record. So this is also a very patient guest, the one and the only Jilly McCord. 
Hello. Hello again. <laughs> hello. hello again. And I'm not often embarrassed, but I am embarrassed because we spent a long time talking. I was absolutely loving it and realised I hadn't pressed record. So thank you for joining us, but thank you for sticking with me. Hello, thank you for having me. You're far too polite, Jilly. You're far too polite. So let's see where we go. Now, I'm going to I'm going to change and we're going to go to the very beginning because I want to hear about where you came from and why rugby was your um, chosen sport. So you're from Langham, a town in the Scottish borders that is a fabulous place with lots of great people. And that was where you fell in love with rugby. Yeah, I mean, as you well know, the Borders towns, they're absolutely steeped in rugby. And, uh, you know, Langham, as you say, is, a, is an amazing place. My family are still there. I go there often. Uh, well, not so much this year, but but if when I can. And, uh, you know, I, I think rugby started really, you know, from just going to watch the, you know, watch the watch Langham. And, you know, when I was kind of a teenager, there was a lot of teams, you know, putting out four or five teams a week, you know. And everybody went to the rugby on a Saturday. You know, we helped out in the kitchens doing the teas. And, you know, I just watched it and loved it. Um, and and then really a, a group of women from Langham set up a, a team. I think they tried about 10 years before, but it had kind of wasn't too many people to play, I think, which was a problem. So I think it started to grow again uh, around the kind of mid, mid-90s. So they started up a team and I was just heading into sort of six years at school and uh, went along and... Yeah, I, you know, a whole lot of girls just in my same age. There's a whole lot of women who are a little bit older, and we had a girls' team and a, a women's team. Then I kind of played in both. And, uh, yeah, first fixture against Hoyk Ladies, which I think was... Um, it was actually a big crowd, you know. We went out with... It was at my, uh, I think, actually, Stuart Hogg's dad that refereed that game. Hogg, uh, yeah, I remember. Good, good guy, John Hogg, yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, we, we lost, but I, I think I scored a... Scored a try. I, was, I mean, yeah, there was a terrible picture in the Langham paper on the Thursday. My mum wasn't too happy, but it was it was a great experience. <laughs> and a place like Langham, rugby is ingrained. It's a huge part of the community. So was it just a natural thing that there was going to be a women's team and that you were going to be involved in it? Were you involved in everything as a kid? I mean, I played. Yeah, I played loads of sports. You know, I, I was really sporty as a as a teenager and just you know as a run about with my cousins and whatever um, and I played all kinds of different sports but I'd always watched rugby and you know I think I think growing up in the borders you kind of know rugby you understand the rules and you know how it all works I think I, what I noticed later on was when I started at university all these girls came to play rugby and they didn't have, didn't, didn't have a clue of the rules didn't know anything about the game but just thought oh, I'd just give it a go so I think we had you know I had an advantage in that in that sense um, but I don't, I don't think there was an inevitability I mean we, we were we were lucky, really, that we had a couple of guys. Um, the late Bomb Hislop, who was uh, our coach, legend, yeah, really great guy, and he he was our coach the first uh, first when we started up. And I remember, I mean, some of his phrases, you know, he used to be like, uh, he used to say, like, come on, it's only pain that we get, you know, and just any time anyone went down, it's only pain, or like, you know, he's scrummaging stuff. He he came to help with Scotland later on when I was yeah. um, and help us with our scrummaging, and some of the girls were like. Jilly, could you just come forward here and translate? What's this guy saying? You know, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah, he was a real kind. You know, both brothers, him and, and Wall, his look set up. Um, so they they coached us, and they were fab, you know, brilliant coaches. So um, we were lucky; we had the support, you know. And I think Langham was in, not unusual in that sense. I think border towns, people often think of them as kind of quite traditional and kind of you know backward in some way, but actually 
you know, Langham was a very progressive place in that sense. You know, I mean, one of the girls who played was one of, I think, the first female coach of of Langham men, which Ali Little. So I mean, yeah. I think they've been very, always very supportive of, of female participation in, in everything. That is amazing. I didn't realise Bomber had done that because he is. Uh, you maybe wouldn't have pegged that on him, and maybe I'm doing him a disservice, but you wouldn't have pegged that on him. But no wonder you became so good if you had a grounded with somebody like that at the very beginning. Well, he used to he used to have a, a set of posts up at his house, and he used to invite me up because his wife was the loose head and I was the tight head. So when I was playing for Scotland, they used to invite me up. He said, "Come up, come up to the house, Julie. We'll do some scrummaging with uh, Francis." So I used to go up and used to, uh, we used to go out in the front lawn and do a bit of scrummaging. So yeah, he was a great guy. That is that is absolutely amazing. I love that. that it's so good. And when you go back, have you been given the freedom, Langham? No, not yet. No, no. Only only Neil Armstrong got the freedom of Langham. I think. I think you've got to step on the moon before they give you that. <laughs> But yeah, no people. I mean, huge, like massive support in Langham. Like when I, you know, was on the, on the show, just loads of the messages and just everyone talking about it. And every time I go back, just yeah, having a great laugh about it. So I'm going down there to do a, a chili festival in October. Last time I did one, I did I did something for the chili club last year, and I got them all in a tent. It was like the Christmas event, you know. And everyone came to see me do this dish, and they gave me these chilies to put in the and the thing, so I, I had this open open air kind of fire or whatever, I put the chilies in the pan, and this not this fumes came off it, and honestly, everyone everyone in the tent started coughing, and they were all like doubled over, and they had to evacuate the tent, and I was like, oh my god, total disaster. So anyway, I'm, going, I, yeah, I'm supposed to be going up against Tony Singh in this next one, so I'll have to, uh, Langham is the chilli capital of Scotland. So. Why, why is Langham the chilli capital of Scotland? Who, who started that? I think it was just a couple of the shops started growing chilies in the window and then it just took off and then uh, they started the chilli club so everyone just started growing them in their houses and then it just became a thing. <laughs> what, what, what happens at a chilli club? Is that uh, where you try and grow the hottest chilli or is it just flavour? Yeah. or? Yeah, I think they, grow, they try and grow all different varieties and then they give each other kind of cuts off their, their chilies and then they all grow different ones and then recipes and chilli jams and all that kind of stuff. So I think it'll uh, maybe the chilli festival will be, be the start of big things. That is amazing. And they'll have to have the bleeper for Tony Singh. Are you a, are you a polite, well-mannered chef? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I am not too bad. I think you had to, you know, if you're on BBC, you've got to keep your... Keep yourself in check. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you played, one of the stories that whenever I mention your name, I'm told how skillful you were. And that's come from different sources throughout your rugby career. And I'm told that you caught the ball behind your back from a kickoff at Newton Stewart Sivens. And I'm not sure if you remember that one. I definitely, I definitely don't remember it. I don't. I don't. Um... But I mean, if somebody said it happened, I guess I guess it maybe did. <laughs> You're claiming it. Was that yeah. what was the skill? Where did that come from? Is that because you were in a small town and in a small town everybody plays everything? Yeah, we definitely played a lot of sport. I mean, netball, basketball, uh, football. I mean, not so much hockey. I wasn't too good at that, but you know, racket sports as well. So I think I just always had quite good hand-eye coordination. My dad played cricket. He was a big cricketer, so even that in the bottom row on you. So. You've got, you know, all kinds of different sports, and I think you know when I found rugby, I, I, for me it was about putting them all together. You know, I was a big girl, I was I was you know a bit chunky in those days, and you know I, rugby gave you a chance to 
to, to use all of that and to use, you know, the, the skills I had, you know, as a prop forward, you, you don't expect people to do a pass and kick and do all of those kind of things. You maybe don't want them to, but <laughs> it was, um, yeah, it definitely, it definitely came together, you know, and I said, I, I wrote, I had this little super cheesy um, kind of scrapbook when I was 17 or 18 that I wrote. And I remember that first game against white ladies. And I said afterwards, you know, I think I have found my passion. And I look back at it now, and it's just—it's quite naive, but brilliant though. At the same time, yeah, and and quite quite interesting language to use at that age that you'd found your passion. Did that did that do anything for you in other areas of life? Did that give you a, a a swagger along the school corridor? Did that give you confidence to put your hand up in class? Did that impact on anything else, or were you already there? I think at that time, I mean, Lyme was so close knit. I mean, my I think by the time I was in sixth year at school, there was 12 of us in our U group or something. So, I mean, we knew each other like the back of our hat. You know, they, they, everyone, I don't think really been in Langham, it changed an awful lot, but um, it certainly, you know, it made a lot of new friends and, you know, it mixed with people that I wouldn't necessarily have, you know, spent a lot of time with and made made lifelong friends, you know, doing, doing that and shared experiences really. Love it. Absolutely love it. And then, then you head to the big smoke for uni and life kind of starts to take off and you keep your rugby going. What was the passion for rugby at a place like Edinburgh Uni at, at that time? Yeah, I mean, I think most people who, who started playing for, for, you know, a ladies' side, a lot of, you know, a lot of the girls who started it in first year were probably doing it just to meet, you know, there may be fairly athletic sort of girls who just wanted to do something fun, do something new, meet a whole lot of new people. Um, they knew nothing about rugby, <laughs> but they would, you know, but you got some real talent because they were, you know, they were raw and young and, and a lot of them were, you know, turned into very good rugby players. We had a good coach, uh, Johnny Sandlin, who stayed with us for like four years. Um, magic. Magic, yeah. And, uh, you know, he was really dedicated to us, you know, like, and I think you, you kind of look back at the coaches, you know, and you think about how much time and effort they put into to doing it, you know, and it, it, you do recognize their, uh, their commitment to it and, and I think you know we took he took a group of kids and you know we we ended up going to the you know the university uh, finals so the British University finals we went in 96 and lost and then we went in 97 both both times at Twickenham played the final and we won the second year so I mean we you know we were beating good sides you know at that point if you think about all the kind of a lot of the English players were coming through these universities as well you know so um there was it was a real kind of probably should have been tapped into a little bit more all these girls coming through the universities but there was um, a bit of a closed shop at the top of the time what's that like playing your first game for langham against hoik and then within no time at all you're running out of twickenham <laughs> it, it was pretty crazy i mean like i, I, I mean see when you go at university you just you're so young and so naive and i mean the first time it was all a bit overwhelming really and i mean it was fairly empty stands but still i mean twickenham is a big old big old kind of concrete jungle isn't it really when you get in you know into that uh, so it was pretty intimidating um and maybe that accounts for the first year i think we lost pretty narrowly but the second time we went down we were a bit more prepared but i mean it's crazy when you think about it. we used to get down on a bus you know from edinburgh and then play a game at twickenham and then get back have a night out and then get back in the bus i remember one of the girls that was sick in a bag and she brought it on the bus with her and put it in the back of her chair just in case I mean, it was that kind of <laughs> yeah. and you you were great for team spirit because i hear that you like to sing you you've got some great pipes uh, i hear the righteous brothers i think were maybe a favorite and a few others uh, have i been misinformed there 
No, I, yeah, I've always been a singer. I mean, I think from coming from Langham, you know, all the steeped in the common riding, and you know, I used to always meet the old boys on the Sunday before the common riding and have a good old sing song. These guys are now in the eighties, you know, we still go out, still go and meet them the Sunday before and have a good old sing. So, I think, uh, yeah, a lot of Scottish songs, a lot of yeah, whatever was going. I was, uh, I was at the back of the bus singing. What was it like going to Edinburgh Uni from Langham? Did you have to? I, I get stick on here. Uh, especially for Richie Gray, who you'll know probably from Gala, who's changing the world. He gives me stick for my my changed accent when I'm on here. Did you have to change a little bit leaving Langham and going to Edinburgh Uni? Yeah, I, I was pretty scared to go, to be honest. I, I like I loved Langham and I loved, you know, I just started playing rugby there. I was having a great time, you know, and I kind of had to leave and I was I was I was quite sad about it, you know. And I think Edinburgh you know, I was in the arts kind of faculty and you're pretty much cut loose really at that point. You, know, you come from a school where you've got 12 people in your in your year group, suddenly you're just one of, you know, thousands. And I, I, I did find the transition quite tough really in some ways. I didn't naturally love it straight away. You know, I, I think rugby was the only thing that, that probably, you know, was the most enjoyable part of it for me, if I'm being honest. You know, it's, it's where I met a lot of people like-minded and, you know, made great friends and, uh, you know, had had all my socialising, I guess, um, through the through the time and the the academic bit was kind of, I'd say, the back burner, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that story. That's uh, that's quite a familiar one, not too far away from home. And those uni years, did that fuel the desire to play international rugby, or were you just doing well in the moment that you were in? Yeah, I mean, I I, I was pretty unfit. In those days, I was very overweight, I think, towards the end of university. And, you know, I was playing against all these players who were playing for Scotland because Edinburgh University, you know, we played with Edinburgh Wanderers and Edinburgh Ackies and all the guys who were uh, playing for Scotland. And, you know, I was big and sort of, I could run into them and run them over or whatever, but I couldn't get around very much. So I was, uh, you know, walking about and, you know, doing that kind of stuff. So I guess at that point, it probably seemed a bit unrealistic, if I was, if I was honest. You know, uh, I knew that probably... It just wasn't going to happen unless I got, you know, a good bit fitter, really. And you were, when you left uni, was the intention always to keep going with rugby? Would did you see that as something you would always do? Yeah, no, I still, I still loved it at that point. I went on to play. I played for Watsonians for a couple of uh, maybe three or four years. Then, so I was playing for uh, them as a club side. A lot of the girls from Edinburgh Uni had gone on to start up a new club at Watsonians, so played with them. Um. And yeah, I mean, I, I still wanted to play rugby, I, I I guess, but I was just still kind of um, playing at it, I guess, if I thought I was going to go any further in the position I was. And when you're at Langham in a school that's that's so small and in a community that's small, everybody in your team, you would know it was, you know, it was Bomber's wife and it was your mate from school. You go to Edinburgh Uni and there'll be girls there from every country and Britain and Europe and probably even further afield. What did it do for your sort of sphere of awareness of what was going on in different cultures and different people and the way different people tick? Uh, where, what did you learn in that experience? Yeah, I think that's definitely true, isn't it? You, I, I mean, you're very sheltered. I think, and coming from the borders, it's a it's a sheltered experience, you know. And actually, it's a it's a narrow, you know. I think I always I always think people from the borders are we sometimes lack a bit of. No, it's not ambition. Ambition is not the right word, but. I guess it's width of, of kind of experience. So like when it comes to like what job you're going to do or something like that, you kind of think, well, what did my mom and dad do? Right? What did, you know, what's everyone around everyone else doing? And 
I guess when you go to somewhere like Edinburgh, you see like a different, whole different life and a different group of people. Um, it didn't change what I did in the end <laughs> before what my dad did. But I, yeah, I think, and it's certainly, as you say, like different countries, meeting people from different walks of life. It just it broadens your experience a little bit, doesn't it? And, uh, you know, you learn at every stage of your life, I think. And how's that helped when you go into the classroom to be a teacher? How much do you draw on and think, I was that kid that, maybe didn't have the worldly wide experience or I was that kid who was playing lots of sport or I was that kid who felt a bit insecure. I was that kid. Are you able to draw on that? I think so. I mean, I, I just, I think you see all kinds. I mean, that's what I love about t teaching, I suppose, is you, you, I think, you know, and rugby helps it. I think everything I've done really has helped it. It's just being able to figure people out and, and sort of like read a room a little bit, I suppose, and see oh, that, that, that's that kind of person. That's that kind of person. And, and just not, you know, I, I, you know, I think if you go up against kids head to head and give them, you know, you've got to figure them out like you do with anybody. You know, get the best out of people. I think you have to figure out what they're, you know, what they what they like, what they're, you know, how they react to criticism, how they react to praise. You know, what's what's the best thing for each individual person? I think rugby teaches you a lot of that. You know, when you see coaches and the way that they, you know, some people get the carrot and some get the stick. I suppose it, um, you know, teaching similar, isn't it? You you kind of get a feel for that. What what did you need? What was your driver and motivation? Uh, I think I needed a bit, bit of stick most of the time, um, but I, I think you know you never take away from the fact. I mean, I think that's that's the thing that all players want, isn't it? And like even even we got to like Scotland level, the only thing we wanted really was the coach to give us feedback. You know, to sit us down and say, "I thought you played really well," or you know, "You've got this to work on," or you know. And I think coaches are in a squad situation; they're always a little bit reluctant to do that. I think because. If, if you kind of tell people what your plan is, then it kind of, you know, I don't think they want, I think they want to keep you on your toes. They don't want you to know what they actually think, you know, about you because, you know, they may, they may have plans for somebody else or drop you or, you know, whatever. So I think, yeah, I think even, even as somebody who needs a bit of stick, I think you always need a bit of praise as well because it's just, it's a motivator, isn't it? What sort of role did you play in the changing room? Who were you? If you saw somebody that you thought needed a bit of stick, were you happy to give it to them? If you needed, saw somebody with a carrot, were you quite busy? Yeah, I, yeah, I think, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say because obviously I went on to kind of, you know, captain teams and all that kind of stuff. And I don't think I was ever somebody who was, you know, I think you get these people. I was never a great trainer, if I'm being honest. <laughs> You know, I, I, as in I didn't love training. You know, I think you get some people who are super enthusiastic, you know, and they just come to every training session full of energy and and they, they lead because they're, you know, the, the best trainer there is and that when they get to the games, they're super hyped. You know, and I don't think I was ever really like that. I think, you know, I got through training and I did what I had to do. But I think in games, you know, I was more serious, I think, in the changing rooms. I was more kind of quiet, I think. And But I think on the pitch, um, and probably because of my background and, and everything, I, I had a, a good feel for the game. You know, I had a good f sense of if something was going wrong, I'd be like, right, we need to do this, you know, to fix it. You know, rather than being a, a shouter or a screamer, I think I was just more of a, yeah, I kind of, I guess I was more of a natural rugby player than a lot of women at that time were, I, I would say. Yeah, and I hear that. I hear that you, you understood the game really well. So was that from watching a lot and being immersed in it that as you say quite a lot of people that you played with probably hadn't had that experience and just picked up the ball at uni yeah and i think i mean you can do that obviously you definitely do that you can turn people into rugby players but i think yeah you have to watch a lot of rugby i reckon to 
to be really good. You have to really, you know, and I think there's a lot of girls didn't really, I mean, not, loads of them did watch loads of rugby, but I think a lot of people didn't really, or hadn't watched a lot of rugby. And Do you still it, watch a lot of rugby? Are you a spectator? Yeah, yeah I watch a lot. I watch, uh, yeah, not not so much live. I, I watch quite a bit in, you know, in Italian and I listen to a lot of these sort of rugby podcasts and yeah, keep up, up to date with it all. But I think it's, it's very quickly, you notice when you're kind of getting a high level of coaching like we were at Scotland, as soon as that stops, very quickly you feel the game moving away from you again. You know, if I went back into, I mean, I coached a bit at school for a while, but I kind of stepped back from it for a little bit. And I think even if I went back into it now, I'd feel a little bit, mm, I've missed out on the new, you know, rules change all the time or laws change all the time. And, you know, fashions, I think there's a lot of fashions, isn't there, in there? coaching that, that you'd, you'd be surprised a lot has probably come full circle and back to where you were <laughs> yeah i mean I, yeah I, I i honestly wondered that you know when we, were, when we had coaches and you were doing this certain thing and i just wondered oh, is this just the new thing you know it was like ice baths i guess <laughs> i don't know if i, I was like oh i used to hate an ice bath but, you know and it was, it, i just didn't feel it did me any good you know but i think it just was one of those things that the first time everyone's got to do it and then they said, oh, it's got to be hot and cold, and now it's got to be just cold, and now it's got to be... And I thought, well, you know, which one is it? <laughs> is it? And then at the end, the end, they said, well, actually, it works for some people. It doesn't work for everyone, so do what you want. So, yeah, I was always a bit sceptical, I think. And when you began to get involved in the Scotland squads, you were you had a pretty serious target you had to hit, really, before you could seriously be a contender to play for Scotland. How did that pan out? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was usually overweight. I think towards the end of university in that next year or so, I was I was pretty pretty out of shape. So I I, I ended up going, uh, I was back in Langham doing my teacher training. Um, I was, did that at Carlisle and I, um, I I just thought I was, you know, back living at home for a year and I knew that the coaches had been kind of on the fringes of Scotland Day and they basically said, look, you know, you're, you're, you're a good player, but you're not going to make it unless you, you know, trim down, get fitter. And I, I remember emailed the coach that says, right, I'm, I'm going to really try and do it. And he just ignored my email. I thought she's never going to do this. And then, uh, so that was a bit of fuel, I think, uh, at that point. I thought, right, I'll show him. And um, I won't name him. Um, and then, uh, so like a year, yeah, a, a year, a year, year and a half, I think I, I lost about 11 stone, which took me uh, yeah, into contention. And then there was trials for Scotland. Um that came in about 2002, I think, or something like that. And uh, I, I pitched up half my size and, <laughs> and scored a couple of tries and they, they, they put me in the wider squad. So. And that that must have been an immense sort of journey, I suppose, to go on that you couldn't really do yourself. You must have had quite a lot of support from those around you, especially those immediately around you. What what was that like? Was that something you needed, or was it just an absolute personal determination? That I'm going to do this. Yeah, it was more a personal thing. It was more just like I just something switched. Just one day, I just thought, right, that's it, and I just went out for a run. You know, it wasn't to say a run. It was probably more like a kind of slow walk uh, jog. But it was, um, <laughs> and I just thought, right, okay, I'll just do it every day. And I, I think I stopped drinking for a year. Stopped, you know, just really cut down on everything and just went for it, you know, just went, and I think it was, and I think, I think with anybody who's got a goal, I think when you start to see, you know, I'd been overweight for quite a long time, quite a while at that point, I think, and I think you kind of lose sight of like, you know, how to do anything about it. And then when you see improvements, I think that is the motivator because you think, all oh, right, okay, that wasn't that bad. I can probably keep going, you know, and it, and it just snowballs and then you get so far along that you just keep going, you know? So I think it wasn't, yeah, it was, it was just a, a personal thing, I think. 
and amazing to achieve that goal, not only for your health, but then becoming an international rugby player. There must have been a huge sense of satisfaction to achieve that. Yeah, massively. I mean, I think I remember going to that trial and they said to me afterwards, they said, because uh, I was playing in the front row, and they said, oh, you had a really good game, but I think you need to maybe bulk up a wee bit. And I was like, oh, I was like, what? I think they meant like, uh, obviously like muscular, because I've done a lot of cardio and I've done a lot of cardio and stuff to kind of lose weight, but I probably hadn't been doing a lot of, uh, yeah, kind of muscle building stuff. So I guess, and I think there was, again, another fashion at the time was, really heavy weights you know so we got straight into that kind of weights program and trying to yeah get bigger again but I, yeah definitely once I got you know into the squad and things I really you know felt like I had achieved something and rugby then I mean the 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 women's game in the time we've been around has been a bit like when the game went from amateur to professional the change in the last few years for the women's game has just been off the chart and social media has played a massive part in that getting the message out there what what do you look back on and think i'm i'm glad that was the time i had yeah i mean i was kind of at the end of i mean i think i was probably i i came in just after really the really amateur i say amateur but it was still amateur but the really kind of i mean the girls you know, even the 97, the Grand Slam team, you know, the Paula Chambers and the Dan Kennedys and all that crew, I mean, they were buying their own kit and, you know, up until a couple of years before I got in. And I think just just as I got in about 2002, 2003, we were merged with the SRU and we were we were then, we had Andy Henderson, Stevie Guillermo and Gil Stevenson were our, our coaches. That's the only kind of regime I, I really knew. So I think um, we had three or four pretty good years, you know, in that period between 2003 and 2010 that's really when the transition began I think to kind of where you know where they're getting to now but I mean I always felt a little bit like I don't know if this is quite true I I felt like we were held almost to higher standards in some ways in terms of like things like our behavior or whatever I, I guess like you know because we were kind of new and there was a real feeling that we were getting all this money invested in us you know we've really got to look like we're the professional crew and I think sometimes we lost the enjoyment you know like I mean, Six Nations, in the first few years, we used to go out you know, after games and get around Edinburgh and have a great you know, time. But I think as we got a bit older, they got quite nervous about that. And we, you know, we, were, we were kept in camp. You know, you'd, you'd go out and play an international and be right back to the Novo Hotel to do your you know, ice baths. And, it, you know, obviously we were trying to win and we were, we, we were taking it seriously. I mean, we went to a World Cup and nobody drank for a month before or a month when we were there. You know, and I think I, I then read Lawrence Delalio's autobiography of 2003 they were out they were out after every game and I kind of thought hold on a minute like we're amateurs there for that. you know so in, in some ways I kind of wondered if we took ourselves a bit you know too seriously at times you know and didn't enjoy as much of you know we had big nights and things after games you know it's not all about the drinking culture I'm not saying that but I guess it's that team bonding and kind of you know bits that you really remember isn't it and what what bits do you really remember? What what memories do you have of changing rooms or, you know, when I, whenever I do the and the more I do these things and the more people I speak to, there are very few people who remember results, uh, but what they remember are people or events or things or moments in matches. What what sort of couple of things do you look back on and think I'm never going to forget that or her or him or that place? Yeah, I mean, I think. 
I, I think winning the, the with a university, winning the British Universities Champion, I'll never forget that. That was a great feeling with a really good friend, you know, good, good people you're young, grown up with. Um, I think going to the World Cup, you know, I went to 2006 and 2010, and I think I, I think I'll give it, I think we definitely made a better team in 2006, and probably we played against New Zealand in our group game, I think, um, and we gave them a really close game. You know, we didn't win it, but it was close, I and mean, it, it was you know, a try or so. I, 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 but it just. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. That like and we were not we were not expected to come anywhere near them. You know, we'd done some line out practice with them a, couple, a week or so before, and they were absolutely like off the chart. And we were like, oh my god, it's gonna be horrendous. And so it was something that day we just sparked. We just played so well, you know. And I remember afterwards, they, you know, they and they went on they went on to win it. I think yeah. So they, their captain came up and she was like, oh my god, you girls, you know. So that that moment, I I kind of regret the two thousand six. I mean, we ended up we finished sixth in the World Cup at the time. Which looking back, I was like, god, that that was an incredible achievement you know but at the time we were a bit disappointed because we we nearly made this the semi-finals um that was a great moment and I think actually one game we played I'd been out with my knee I did a I did my interior cruciate ACL and I was out for a year and a bit year and a half maybe and then I came back um for the six nations and I was on the bench and then the night before um the two props were doing tackle practice against each other and I think because it had a lockout took Beth Dickens out and <laughs> twisted her ankle the night before the match. And I was like, right, here we go. So I started. And then, uh, yeah, we beat France at last wave. Like, try, Lucy Miller's got to try in the last last kick of the game, basically. And that was that was a magic moment. Just because I'd been out for so long and I'd, I'd, I'd you know, kind of fought back into the squad and I was just, yeah. Oh, my job all night was just sacking lineouts. <laughs> That's all I did all night. <laughs> Everybody needs to know their role. I've listened to Johnny Wilkinson talking, and he talks about 2003. He would give anything for the last 15 seconds of the game, not not the celebration, not the final whistle. The feeling he had in those last 15 seconds, where everything was about what they'd rehearsed, and he was confident, and he was in the zone, and all those things. Were those moments you remembered against New Zealand or in that game against France, where you were? just maybe it sounds like both of those there was no real pressure on you you weren't supposed to play against France you weren't supposed to do well against New Zealand were those the moments or is that a Scottish cultural thing is that uh where does that come from do you think I think probably neither of those times we felt in control really because I guess you know the French game we won in the last second so it was literally back against the wall but that moment 
of, of that score. You know, it's just something we didn't do that well. You know, we didn't do that kind of, well, we didn't <laughs> supposed to win, I suppose. <laughs> um, but no, we did, we did win games, you know, at, at the start. Um, but I think the problem was when I think when I started, winning was kind of expected. So it wasn't really that much enjoyed. You know, we didn't enjoy it that much because it's like, well, we're supposed to beat them. So that's fine, you know. I, I, but then it's only when you go later on and the team transitioned really and, and we lost a whole lot of players and then we started to lose quite routinely. And you think, oh, God, I wish I'd enjoyed just enjoyed those moments when we won games, you know, for yeah. Scotland. Because I was just young and I didn't I didn't know, you know, that that, that it was going to go that way. But um yeah, it's tough. It's tough when you play. I've heard a few people talking uh, talking differently, and I, I have a view on on what you should do when you win. I heard Rio Ferdinand talking about as soon as he won, it was next job. He wanted to know who we were signing and were we going to win the league? Were we going? To, he wanted to know the next job, and there's a bit of me feels a bit sad about that because if you work so hard and while winning's not everything, when you when you are lucky enough, and I'm going to say lucky enough, you've worked hard for something, but there's a there's luck in there somewhere, and you've won something. You should enjoy it. Is that a lesson you've learned now in life to to enjoy those high moments or good moments or lovely moments? Definitely. I remember listening to Andy Murray when he talked about when he won his second Wimbledon and he said the first one I didn't enjoy it. He said I didn't stop and take stock and think, wow, you know, like, I mean, God, it's not, not anything like that. But, you know, he, he was determined the second time he would. And I think that's definitely true. And I think, you know, even the, even the MasterChef thing, I was, you know, in some ways I was quite relaxed because I was just determined to, like, enjoy it and just think, wow, this is, like, this is an experience I'll never get again, you know, like, a, and I'm not going to ruin it by kind of like getting too uptight about it. It's a cooking competition. Yeah, I want to do really well. I want to win it. But, you know, at the end of the day, I know if I do my best, you know, that's that's all I can do. And and I think, and I really did take it all in and enjoy it. Whereas I think when you're younger, sometimes you just don't, you don't do that. You just, yeah. Yeah. You, you, youth wasted on the young, isn't it? We, <laughs> that's come up a couple of times that people have spoken to. <laughs> And let's go on to MasterChef because you, I love the way you put that. It's a cooking competition and we can, we can bring th- all lots of things that, you know, rugby's 15 folk chasing a ball against another 15 folk. Like if we strip it down, but why would you put yourself in that position? What made you apply for MasterChef? I just, I, I love cooking. Just, I, I love it. I, you know, in the same way, I used to love rugby. No, I still love rugby. I still do love rugby, but not, <laughs> the cooking doesn't hurt as much. <laughs> So yeah, just loved, um, you know, I've always loved cooking for people, for family. I, you know, I was interested as a kid. I, my mum said I used to sit and watch Delia Smith when I was like two or something, you know, like, so it was like, just always excited by it. And um, yeah, just people kind of prompting you as I got through, I said, oh, we should give that a go. And, you know, I'd always watched the programme. I'd always been a fan of it. And I think I just thought, right, okay, let's give it a go. And uh yeah, I say seven or eight thousand people apply, so you don't ever think really in your first time you're going to get on. Um, and there's quite a big pre-process, so you have to do a little video at home. And I bought a live crab, and it started crawling about. And I was like, <laughs> "This isn't going to go down well." Uh, to smash it in the head. Um, and, then the, and then, yeah, you have to do like a phone interview, long phone interviews, and then uh, I kind of you have to meet them in a hotel in Edinburgh and bring a dish, and. Uh, sort of make it in front of them and have a chat and then yeah so then they, they phoned and said I was going to be in the last heat but they only gave you a week's notice they phoned I didn't think I was going to get on and then they phoned up and they said right you're on next week last heat can you make it I was like 
don't know, better ask my headmaster. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how did that go? Did he know you'd applied? No. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, he, he didn't. And because it, it was all in the summer and I wasn't sure when it was filmed. I thought it might be weekends or whatever. I just kind of went with it and thought, right, I'll deal with that later. And then when I got on, the actual the first uh, three days that I would be filming were in our half term. And by that point, it would have gone from 56 to like 16. So I went to see him and I said, look, I've got this great opportunity. I says, you know, it's a good chance I won't get through, you know, but if I did, <laughs> it might mean a little bit of time off. And he was like, okay, go for it. And then, of course, I kept going knock on his door on a Monday morning and be like, hey, I'm going to Hong Kong tomorrow, so I'll be away for a week. That's amazing. It's great that you got support because these things are, are so important. Was the cooking bug because the kitchen was a hub in your home? And was it something that you, was it something you saw your parents doing and thought, I can get involved in this. Was it a social yeah. bit that you think sparked it? Yeah, it's definitely. A, I mean, there's definitely a social part. I mean, we were a family of, you know, my mum and dad, and then I've got two sisters and a brother, so there's four of us. So, and every night, without fail, we sat down together, we ate together. You know, we, my dad, cooked, you know, my mum or dad cooked a, a meal. You know, and I started helping and started doing all that. So there's definitely a social aspect to it, and I love still having people to eat. And you know, that's one of the sadnesses of this year, isn't it? Just not being able to do all of that um so there's definitely an element of that but there's just an element of i just don't like the create like creating stuff i like making food and i like making it look nice and i like trying out new things and uh, it's just all i think about uh, you know weekends and things like that which is um yeah which i, I still enjoy now I, I i love talking to you i think and we've got heaps in common but there's no way i'm inviting you for dinner there is no way I'm having you around and cooking for you. Is that what's happened since MasterChef? You've you've stopped getting dinner uh, dinner invites. Yeah, definitely. Nobody nobody has me for dinner. I think this, I honestly count on one hand. I mean, people come here all the time. You know, <laughs> they get invited back. A family occasionally, but they get sick of it. But I, I I end up going to people's houses and cooking, and uh, which I don't mind. I, I don't mind. I like it. Um, I just I, I love seeing people eat food and enjoy it that's what i really you know i've done a lot of these kind of private dinners and stuff like that and people's big celebrations and birthdays and whatever and it, it's just great fun to do you need to turn up and you know it's like creating joy for somebody you know which is just a nice thing to do oh i love that it's creating joy for somebody that is gold that is absolutely gold and i can vouch for it because my one of my wife's colleagues has had the pleasure and and you got rave reviews when uh when my wife told her i was going to be speaking to you so that was excellent when you were at uni did you cook or were you just yeah. fish finger sandwiches no no i cooked i cooked and then in my flats i had a flat in stockbridge i used to work in the Starbucks across the road and had this flat and there's four of us we used to live in there and, and uh, anybody I lived with I, and then I lived with a girl I played rugby with at Scotland for a couple of years while we were doing the Scottish stuff and they all any, any ex-flatmates call it the uh, the jelly stone and they said when, when they stopped living with me they all lost a stone immediately so I think it's that's probably what it is I love that, the jelly stone. And when you went on to MasterChef, Greg Wallace is a big rugby man. I think he's a level two qualified coach. Did that give you a little in? Did that help, do you think? Yeah, I mean, he definitely loved to have a chat about rugby. He's a big Wasps fan and a big England fan, so we had a bit of banter about all of that. And I think he said if I won, he'd take me to Twickenham for Scotland, England. But 
that would have been that amazing match. Uh, <laughs> but he, he never invited me. But the, um, yeah, he's he, he's just like he's he's just as he appears on screen, just comes on, cracks terrible jokes, and uh, but he does love his uh, love his rugby and. Um, yeah, and he's, he's he's doing a big kind of fitness thing at the moment as well. I think. Ah, uh, yeah, he's looking fit as a fiddle. And we only see this much, you know. We we see an hour and it's clipped and it it looks great. And we see the pressure and we see the high points. And what what's the experience really like? I I, I like in these sort of things. I I talk to kids and use Danny McCaskill clips a lot when I'm teaching because I like to show them that although we see 90 seconds of Danny McCaskill doing amazing things on his bike, there's been days and days of planning and failure and, and all those kind of things. It's a bit like sport where we see the 80 minutes or 90 minutes at the weekend and we've we've not been party to the build-up. What's, what's it like being on a show like MasterChef? Yeah, I mean, it's terrifying to begin with. <laughs> I mean, the first... The first day was terrifying. I mean, I literally was sweating, like, like wandered about for twenty minutes, just didn't know what I was doing. Like, I just expected it to be a much softer kind of introduction, as in they would show you what to do and like how to use the cookers and all that kind of stuff. There's none of it. It's just literally, like, you've just got off a train, you go, get going, pick, just pick some ingredients and cook something. You know, you've got an hour, and it it, it was terrifying. But yeah, it, it did. I did calm down a bit after that. But I mean, I, I was I, I was you know not doing anything about television, but I mean, a whole day of filming was then became yeah half an hour. So you you know you were quite in some ways I was quite worried not worried but you were a bit a bit apprehensive because we filmed the show it finished by Christmas and it didn't show until I think the first episodes were in February or March. So you've got this whole period when you know it's in the kind of in the can as they say, and you know that they're editing it all, but you've no idea what the outcomes you know what the kind of end product's going to look like. And it's quite nerve-wracking because you sort of think, am I just going to come across as this like really dull? Like, because I was quite—I think because I'd done yeah. rugby interviews and rugby, I, I, I treated you know when they were asking you all these questions, I treated it like that and didn't really give them anything because I was kind of like, no, nah, I'm just going to stick to my script. And you know, they were like, you want to win it, and I'd be like, I just want to do the best I can, you know, and work hard. You know, this like, sort of rugby answers, you know. <laughs> I said, I just thought I'm just going to come across like this, you know, like really metronomic like, dull. Uh, Which maybe did, you know, but at the same time, you you were just worried because you think at one little roll of the eyes or you know little thing and the whole nation could turn against you you know because you, you see it on social media now you know if you go oh to, yeah you know some people on the show that i knew really quite well got a really hard time and i was like but i was quite i was lucky in that sense i didn't i didn't get a lot of you know negativity um on social media because i think that's when you put yourself on one of these shows you, you you know you can pretty much lay yourself out there for it oh it it was class i can remember watching and my wife said oh yeah, she was a rugby player, and then obviously, then it starts right. Who's Jilly McC And then the world becomes smaller as I realise that Beth Dickens is ready to stitch you up for a story, and <laughs> Ali Little uh, is ready to set you up for a story, and and it just it was brilliant. And I saw I read an article that you did, and you said the support you got from the kids at school was amongst the, I can't remember what you said, something like the most meaningful, or it was it was the best. How how cool. Did your teacher level go by being on MasterChef? Yeah, for a couple of weeks it went quite high, but I think it's pretty much gone back to normal now. The kids have got short memories, haven't they? But it was definitely at the time there was there was definitely a buzz around the school. You know, it was like it was really it was because parents were watching it with kids. You know, they were at home watching you know the same program. They were all tuned in, you know, at the same time. And then the next day they'd be like, "Oh my god, so he did this, blah blah." You know, and 
uh, they'd be like, go, could you go, Jilly? And I was like, it's, it's Miss McCord, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it you know, so they, they got really into it, which was just really nice to see. You know, that, that it was it was like, you know, it was like a community, I guess, you know, they all feel part of something. Absolutely. And and the town of Langham right behind you with their chilies on their lap, uh, go, Jilly. What, what moment did you have where you thought, I can't, I can't believe this? I mean, there's quite a few. I mean, it's probably day one, I suppose, when you see that apron sitting on the bench and you're like, oh. Um, but definitely towards the end. I mean, I think when we got to the last four and um, we were going to Hong Kong, I think when they told us we were going to Hong Kong, we were like, this is mad. And then, uh, you know, Raymond Blong, who had been one of my food heroes, you know, came into the kitchen and he was going to do like a whole day masterclass with us. And I was just like, wow, this is, <laughs> this is beyond anything I'd expected. You you did you put yourself out there in every respect as a as a chef as a as a person you're now known you're recognisable has there been any funny moments since then where you've been stopped in Lidl uh, as you're buying a yeah a, a frozen pizza no, seriously that happens all the time if you get if you get caught in the ready meal aisle my god I have to go in disguise that's what masks have been good I've been buying all kinds of pot noodles and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't really. But you know, people do have a little look in your trolley or uh, yeah, that kind of stuff. But it's funny now. I think because it's been a couple of years now, obviously that people, well, a lot of people say hello to you, but they don't really know why they're saying you know they don't know why they're saying hello to you. Or sometimes they say, oh, "Hi, how do I know you? Did we play yeah. tennis? Tennis? Tennis together?" I'm like, "No, we didn't. We didn't play tennis together." And you let them go through like all these different because you don't want to be like, "Is it maybe the television?" <laughs> <laughs> Like an idiot. So like, and then they, and they, then they remember, and they're like, "Oh, I'm so sorry." You're like, no, it's "Honestly, fine." But it's, what, it's it's funny. It's funny, and uh, it's a funny experience. What, what did you want out of it? Did Did you have a plan, or did you just a fancy a shot at MasterChef? Was it Was it as much as that? Uh, yeah, no, I wish I knew. I, to be honest, I didn't go in with the plan, and I think I think actually, if you really want to capitalize on on a reality show, I guess essentially what it is you have to really have a plan because you have to hit the ground running and say like, you know, I think if you, in that last week or two, if you suddenly said, right, this is my plan. I'm looking for investors. I'm looking to do this. I think you probably would have, could have, you know, got it. But I was just kind of like in the moment and you know, I didn't even know what Instagram, I didn't even have an Instagram account when I first started. And then suddenly everyone was like, oh, you're one of them. So I was like, you know, things like social media, I was just naive. I didn't, you know, I didn't tap into, you know, what I should have done, but I, I cook stuff now. I go on my Instagram and you know put loads of recipes on and stuff like that. And I quite I just quite like doing the uh, doing dinners, doing you know festivals, events, doing a bit of kind of work for different companies and stuff, and doing it alongside the, the day job. Really, I think that's the best of both worlds. What What have you turned down? Did Did you get an offer that you you thought oh I could go for that? But I mean you get these kind of half offers of like, you know, what you should come and work at this restaurant, you should start a restaurant, you should do blah, blah, blah. And you think, well, I, you know, I, I don't think, I, I think, I mean, especially given, given the last year that we've had, I'm pretty glad I didn't, if I'm being honest. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Chucked, chucked it all in and started up with something. I think I could have been in, uh, in hot water by now. Um, but yeah, I, I'm happy with no regrets at all. I absolutely loved it. And, you know, things keep coming from it and the more you do, the more you get, the more you kind of get into. So, Absolutely, I love that, and I love that this is your passion on top of what you do. So you you love your day job, and it, does it give you more fuel for this as a 
as a hobby, I suppose, without sort of belittling it at all, because obviously you're highly skilled and able to do it's so you've got your day job which you enjoy, and it no there will be days where you don't, but that's that's life. But then you have this other outlet to keep things fresh. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose like you know, people forget I suppose as well. You we played rugby alongside the job, you know. And when I think about when I think back to that now, I think it's madness. You know, I used to get up at five in the morning and train before work, and then used to drive to Edinburgh do you know weights after you know, and then you know every weekend taken up with it. And you think, God, how did I function really? When you think about you know the, the amount of commitment that took to to do something you loved, you know, alongside your job. So this is in some ways a lot less commitment than that and it's it's as i say it doesn't hurt as much so it's um it, yeah there's a lot of enjoyment i can get with it you know and i think as a school teacher you know we get we get good holidays and you know it's it's good to have something i think to other hobbies other things that to distract you and you know in the same way it's like you say getting support from the school i think it's so important that you know in school sometimes we're really tied i think to like school terms and you know it was, I think it was really good of the, of the headmaster to give me that opportunity because I think if had he not, I think I would have ended up maybe a bit frustrated, you know, and it might have, you know. So I think in the end, he's ended up with a with a better, more committed teacher because I feel, you know, supported, I guess. Yeah, amen. I love that. Um, I would imagine you are one of the cool teachers. I, I can see kids keen to get to your lesson. I bet there are kids who love history because of their teacher. How important do you see your role in, yes, inspiring, but sometimes I think we as a teaching profession can get a bit carried away in that. But how important do you see that time that they get to spend with you? Yeah, I mean, I think this last year has probably shown us what, how important school is for kids. You know, like if, you know, you see when they don't have it and they don't have, you know, the, the social aspect of it and and also just structure isn't it of of being in um, in classes and and having that interaction i think maybe it's made people appreciate the the teaching professional <laughs> a wee bit more as they've had to battle at home and and try to you know and, and, and a real genuine look at what the kids you know what, what it's like to kind of learn and all that kind of stuff so i think you know for me i, I do a lot of the kind of guiding stuff as well and you know i think it's just for me it's just about figuring kids out and you know seeing what they need really and and not not trying to create conflict, trying to kind of avoid it, I think, and, and you know, show them ways out. I think that's what kids need, isn't it? Sometimes like solutions to their, you know, current problem rather than dwelling on what's, you know, what's maybe wrong or, um, and in the classroom, just teaching, you know, I think it's just about getting kids interested in stuff, you know, and, and being, you know, we've got history and politics I teach, so we've been gifted with a, a great year for, you know, a couple of years for teaching politics and, you know, just getting them engaged and looking at the world around them and thinking, right, okay, it's, it's important that I understand these things. But even listening to you talk, I, I can, I'm engaged. I can imagine kids being engaged and excited by what you're delivering. The, the way a teacher makes kids feel and, or coach, or, you know, we, we might not remember the knowledge, but we remember how people make us feel. And that's on Facebook every other day from somebody or other. How hard do you work to create that environment in your classroom where kids feel valued and nurtured and, you know, challenged and supported? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know, I mean, work as hard as, as every teacher, I guess, but it's, yeah, I, th I think your classroom is just a place where you feel like, you know, it's calm, it's supportive, it's, you don't allow, you know, 
people to be unkind to each other, really. And I think this this kind of your message of, you know, kindness, happiness, all that kind of stuff, I think that's just such an important one at this point in time, you know, that it's really come about, come out in the last couple of years that people just be kind to each other. I mean, it's just such a simple, simple rule, really, isn't it? You know, I mean, we can all have a joke and, you know, rib each other and wind each other up and all that kind of stuff, and I'm all for that. But, you know, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing I dislike more than, just meanness, you know, and real meanness towards each other. So I think that's what I try to get across to kids. I, I love the the different parts that you've got. You've got rugby, and it's not necessarily finished, but it is in the time and energy that you give it. Your teacher, who has taken on a pastoral role, which is not for everyone, um, and then you have this unbelievable hobby and hobby that you really hung yourself out to dry with in front of the whole nation and said, right, this is, this is me. Do all of those things, they've, they've brought you to this point, not necessarily speaking to me, but they've brought you to this point. When you think back to 15 year old Gillian Langham, could you have planned it? Do you, do you get it? Do you pinch yourself? Do you think, well, that's just how life goes? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I feel very fortunate. I feel definitely very fortunate to be able to, you know, follow two, three, two dreams, I guess, you know, the things that I, I probably at 15 year old would have, if I'd said to myself, right, I want to play for Scotland and captain it, I want to go to World Cups, I want to get to the final of MasterChef, I, you know, that would have seemed like mental. <laughs> you know, like, it would have, you know, it would have done, you know, like, and it, it, you know, that, and I suppose like when you take stock of it, I've not really thought about it in those terms before, but yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty cool really that to have been able to do that but i suppose you know think wait, wait, wait what now <laughs> yeah oh brilliant i love that <laughs> not really i mean i'm enjoying it but i, I think rugby is a funny one isn't it like i i do feel i do miss i miss that you know community uh, a lot more i think i'm i'm I've stepped back a little bit. I don't think I was ever going to make a coach somehow. I don't think good trainers or bad trainers make good coaches. <laughs> so i do miss being around rugby but i think i I think I, I hear, maybe hear a lot of people saying towards the end of rugby, you, I, didn't, I don't know if I fell out of love. I don't think that was quite exactly it. But, you know, you had injuries and you didn't feel, you know, as you get older, you can't, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a struggle, you know, and I'm doing it alongside a job. And uh, I think when, when I finished rugby, I just was tired of people telling me where I had to be at times and what I had to, you know what I mean? Like, like go to training, you know, go and stand outside in the cold again. I just thought, nah. I'm not, and I just just left it completely because, I, and in some ways, I regret that. I think I, I should have, I would have liked to have stayed involved in, you know, in the women's game a little bit more. But yeah, I just needed a break. I think. When you watch the women's game now, what what excites you? What what do you see happening that you think maybe I wish that was me, or I'm glad that's happening now, or you've forgotten this thing that that was really important. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously things have moved on a lot. I mean, my dad texted me. There was, there was a game on. I think it was the England France game last year. It was on BBC, and he texted me. He said, "Oh, rugby's got a lot better since you stopped playing, isn't it?" I thought, "Oh, that's nice for that." Was like, really? That's <laughs> just unkind. <laughs> but I think I mean, he's right, of course. You know, I think when you saw the standard, I mean, I, I don't know. Sometimes TV cameras can make things look. I, I don't know that, it, but it definitely the standard is is, is higher. There's no doubt about it. And I think that's down to, you know, obviously younger girls have gone professional and, you know, some of the Scottish girls have the chance to do that as well. Um, so the levels of fitness, levels of skill, I mean, the kicking game, I think, has come on um, enormously. It was a real struggle to find good kickers, I think, in, 
when I was playing, and that that makes the game very difficult. I think if you're you know, a forward, <laughs> you know, you just can't get out of situations really. Um, so I think there's, there's been a lot of improvements, but you know, I do say that having had a glimpse of of the life of a professional rugby player, I, I don't think I could have done it. To be honest, I think just the, the grind. I think the grind of every day, you know, training and and I think people don't appreciate as well how hard mentally rugby or, or, or sport at that level I, or, or I think can be, you know, taking the knocks and being told you're dropped and, you know, picking yourself back up and do not, you know, that I think it's, it's, it's hard. You know, I can see, you know, kids find it hard as they, as they go through it. And, and I think a lot of the people who make it in the end, it's not necessarily the most talented. They were the ones who could, you know, take the knocks and get up again. Yeah. And endure it for longer. I think there's, there's a big bit to be said in there, you know, kids who are good and then they get into and the pathway sort of happens for them. But did they love it? It sounds to me like you played because you loved it, not necessarily because you were good at it, but it was good that you were good at it as well, because that led you to Scotland and World Cups, but you did it because you enjoyed it. Yeah. And I suppose it's different, maybe, I suppose, as a girl starting at the age of 17, 18, that, you know, you see a lot of boys, I think, who've, you know, if they've gone through from the age of eight, nine, ten, you know, Trying to get to their twenties, like, geez, I'm playing this game. <laughs> played a long, t- you know, a long time, you know. And uh, yeah, I can see it's 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 tough. I love it. I absolutely love it. Now I'm I'm conscious that we had our dry run, and now we're in. So, Julie, I've kept you for a long time. I've absolutely loved talking to you. But at the end of this, I, I always ask the guest to finish a sentence for me, and and I'm not sure how much time you've had, a lot, but you've been talking while you're doing it. So finishing the sentence. So, Jilly, for you, happiness is? Happiness is f- uh, dinner with friends and family. Uh, good glasses of wine, something something I've made, not them. And, uh, <laughs> and a, good laugh, a good laugh. You know, that's what we've all missed, I think, this year, just that communal experience and fun. You know, I hope it all comes back in the next few months. I was going to ask who cooked when you started that. I was going to ask, but it was you. So you clarified that. I love it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, this has kind of come out of that frustration of, of lacking the contact. So thank you very much for giving up so much of your time. I've absolutely loved talking to you. And I really hope that we get to meet again in future uh, somewhere in person, uh, whether it be school against school or at Murrayfield or doing the muckle tune for some chilies. No, absolutely. I love that. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thanks, Jilly. Well, I absolutely loved that. Time flew. Uh, I'm sad that I didn't press record the first time, but maybe you got an improved version. And what an absolute gem. And lots of the themes we've come back to. This was never intended for learning, but we're back to build relationships, share experiences and make memories. And we've just heard some fantastic stories. Jilly is an absolute legend. Love it. And I can't wait to see her. If you've enjoyed this, please tune in to Apple, Acast and Spotify where you can download. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you to Sean Phelan, who's backstage pushing the buttons and making sure that I press record and when I hit stop as well. Thank you, Sean. Thank you to Jilly. Uh, I have loved it. I hope you're going to tune in again soon in future for more of our guests. My name is Bruce Aitson from the Happiness Is podcast and my happiness is egg-shaped. See you soon. Hello, I'm May. Hello, I'm Chaos, and And our happiness is egg-shaped.
Happiness is egg-shaped and love's a circle with no end. No, he said happiness is egg-shaped. Hey, um, happiness is egg-shaped. Happiness is egg-shaped and love's a circle with no end. Cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.